a listener production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode it's an Aussie in New Zealand talking to a Kiwi who now calls Australia home. We are literally split by the Tasman. Andy McElray settled on the Gold Coast in the early 2000s and now runs his self-titled McElray racing operation with a diversely successful range of services that interconnect. Prepping race cars for customers with a focus on Porsche and GT machines. There's driver development, tuning, engineering support and an impressive simulator. A tool to learn and complement the race programs, not a toy. Along the way, this outfit, as Warren Luff explained in a recent episode of Rusty's Garage, has coached some impressive young racers in that gap between carts and the junior formula to turning professional. There's the right level of stern talk when required, but because a number of the team at MR have a driving background, the coaching is next level and delivered with a kind of intuitive guidance that not everyone can offer. The things that I can sort of see them doing or 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 advice that I can give them to not only make them a better driver on track, but also to be a better driver off track and how they engage with fans and sponsors and all that sort of stuff. Because the outside of the car is such a huge part of what we do. And a lot of the time that determines whether you actually get the opportunity to get into the car as well. Matt Campbell and Jackson Evans are great MR graduate stories that have earned drives within the Porsche framework globally. Young racers that were perhaps on the quieter side to begin with, but now walk and talk with a level of confidence shaped by experience here, results and the invariable stirring and laughter that are standard for this outfit. Andy has a nickname for everyone. Shag, George and more. His son Hunter is now racing in America and endeavouring to make it to IndyCar. We'll talk about that later. But we begin with Andy's own driving career, one that you sense could have gone further. There are right turns too that took him to Europe and the States to work with some big names that he still calls friends. This is a story of mateship too, of not being afraid to roll the dice and have a go, and one of family that has a generational love of racing. I grew up in a little country town in uh, the South Island of New Zealand called Ashburton. It's become somewhat infamous since uh, a handful of us lads that have left the town and and, and come over here and, and relocated and and you know and and tried to to live our dreams in Australia. Um, but yeah, that we, we myself, Tim Miles, Johnny Evans, Jackson's dad, and Paul Crookshank, um, and a couple of our other buds, we we all grew up together. We met at school. Um, we soon worked out we had a common interest with race cars and. Um, yeah, it just it sort of grew from there. We all left school, got our you know at sixteen or seventeen, but as you did back then, and went and did our apprenticeships, and um, and, and yeah, just started racing. Um, from my own perspective, I my family was very much a motorsport family. Obviously, with with dad racing my whole life, 
and um, and my grandmother before him. So she was the one who actually got got us all uh, addicted to this crazy game. So she was one of the founding members of the Ashburton Car Club, and um, she did a lot of car club events and sprints and things like that. And then then Dad had an opportunity to take over the family farm, um, which looking back now would have been a far more lucrative and wiser um, move, but he <laughs> he loved cars and um, used to do broadsides up the driveway at the farm. And um, when when my uncle Tommy, Dad's younger brother, was smart enough to be mustering horses on the on the in the mountains with my grandfather, well, with his grandfather rather, and um, so he Tommy ended up taking over the farm, which was the right thing. And uh, Dad. Um, he went off and did his own thing around cars. So that's it. it it's it's it, when you hear people talking about it, it's in the blood. Well, it's in our case, it's definitely in the blood. No doubt about that. We will talk more about the Kiwi Racing Mafia to your South Island mates as we go in the podcast here, and later on about your son and 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 his racing. Um, while you reflected on your dad there a moment ago, there is a cool uh, picture that I spotted in the build up to this. Um, you, your dad. And Hunter, I think it's 2017. You all raced a Toyota 86 together. Um, might have been a class trophy, I think, in all of that. That, that. that personally must have been a very special one, was it? Yeah, um, it was. At the time, we we kind of knew we were doing something pretty cool, the three of us together. Um, and it was one of those little windows of time where Dad was young enough and healthy enough um, to to do a, a you know a mini endurance race and and Hunter was was old enough and and was starting to you know start getting to get his uh, get himself organised in Formula Ford racing so he was Dad was young enough Hunter was old enough and and I was just in the middle so um, yeah that was a that was a pretty amazing thing and as the years go by uh, it becomes as you reflect a little bit more it becomes more obvious how special it really was and one of the probably one of the coolest things about it is. Hunter had got his first GoPro at the time, so he fancied himself as a bit of a bit of a uh, bit, bit of a producer, as they all do. <laughs> and uh, so he's we've got he he did a little uh, I was probably a thirty minute video of that whole weekend. Um, and you know, obviously, in another ten or fifteen years' time, it's going to be real special because the bond that Hunter has with my dad is really special because um, they're uh, obviously again. The similarity and the connection that we all got through racing, um, yeah, those two guys are, are, are they're actually like brothers. They when they get together, they share one brain, and um, they're uh, just you know taking the piss and have, having fun, and they clearly love each other's company, which is pretty neat. Terrific. What was your first racing experience, mate? And give us a sense of the feeling that it left you with. I I, I believe it was around like an Austin A30 and it might have been autocrosses and things like that. What was the first experience? My first sort of competitive experience was was exactly that. I had an Austin A30 that jumped out of fourth gear and I used to have to sling my leg over the gear stick to hold it in gear. Um, and uh, I, was, I was a mechanic, but I it was clearly not a very good one because I couldn't even fix my own A30 Austin gearbox. But um, one of the advantages of growing up in a little town like that was we had lots of shingle sprints and farm autocrosses on farms. And then, you know, we would go up to Christchurch or down to Timaru and do a, a, a track day, a, a sprint event. Um, so those were my my sort of early days behind the wheel. But before even before that, Dad had bought a, a homemade 
um, single seater, which had a, someone might hear this and correct me, but I'm pretty sure it had a Norton 750 engine in it. And it was kind of, you know, like a, looked like a Cooper or one of those cars from the 50s or 60s. And I would have been nine or 10. And uh, dad thought it'd be cool to get me started on my racing career, despite having not ever sat in a go-kart. Um, so I got the chance to drive it around the track at Ruapuna in Christchurch at lunchtime. Um, and one of the last bits of advice Dad gave me before I hopped in this thing uh, was, if it's on fire, hop out. <laughs> but he wasn't much more specific than that. So uh, so this thing was pretty uh, – uh, the car apparently had a reputation for every time it was driven by whoever owned it at the time, something would fall off it. And this day was no exception. So I was eight or nine years old driving down the front straight at Timaru with with, with uh, my mum and my, my grandparents and half of the Ashburton Car Club standing on the fence watching me puddle around at about 40 mile an hour. And um, going down the front straight on about the third or fourth lap, I wasn't a particularly confident driver at that age, but um, I, I lifted off the throttle in front of everyone, and um, the thing backfired and blew the primary pipe off the exhaust, which was pointing towards the cockpit. So a big, a bloody shot of flame flew into the cockpit beside me, and I'm like, oh, I remember my, I remember my guidance here. If it's on fire, hop out. So cruising along at between somewhere between forty and fifty mile an hour, I stood up on the seat and jumped out of the car in front of my grandparents and my mother. And Dad was in deep shit for that for a long time. <laughs> but that was. Uh, that was my first, my first experience on track, which was quite surreal because I'd dreamed about it my whole life and then actually being out there was cool and then doing something as famous as jumping out of it while I was driving along was um, probably helped set the scene for the rest of my racing career. Hey, you're a good talker. Yeah. That's obvious, mate. Did you get in trouble at school with that or could you talk your way out of it? You know, this is even, – even my kids don't believe this, but as a – when I was their age, I was – Quite respectful, quite polite. Um, wasn't <laughs> much of a. What <laughs> uh, wasn't you know certainly wasn't a salesman of any any kind. And um, I think it was actually the confidence of leaving. I hated school. I just was not good at it. It, it, it didn't like me. And um, so getting out of there and and becoming an apprentice mechanic was probably the beginning of me building some confidence. And then. Hmm. Then getting to do some of these car club events and 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 finding out that my 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 lifelong ambition of being able to be a half reasonable driver seemed to be um, a possibility that I just started getting confidence then and then then you add the the special ingredient called alcohol and um, <laughs> and you never look back. <laughs> Mate, you you and and your your buddies that you mentioned before that you were you were knocking about with. I, I love stories like this about close schoolmates that then continue to cross paths in later life, later life personally uh, and professionally. Uh, Tim Miles, who's just sold supercars for a second time, always good to admire somebody who sells something twice, um, uh, <laughs> he, he he was initially keen on your sister mate or something. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that's very true. We were uh, four or five or six years old and, and Tim and I, so Dad was driving in one of those car club events Tim's dad, Alan, was uh, one of the, also one of the founding members of the Ashburton Car Club with my grandmother, and Alan was a, um, after he stopped competing, he became one of the stewards for uh, Motorsport New Zealand, or Mans, as it was known at the time. So Alan was officiating, dad was driving, and us kids were just playing in the gravel with our matchbox toys and um, making out little tracks and 
doing what kids do at that age. And but um, Tim, who's always always had an eye for a pretty girl, um, thought <laughs> that my sister was pretty okay. So it was only years, it was years later that I found he was only hanging around me for the first couple of years just to try and get a bit of a sniff at my sister. <laughs> hey, tell me, tell me, he says to ask about the Stew Special, a homemade sports car that I think you sold to him. Is that right? Yeah, I know where he's going with this. That that's trust him to ask this one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was a homemade homemade sports car that. Um, It'd been built by the guy who ran the local testing state vehicle testing station in, in Ashburton, um, an old legend called Stu, Stuart Grazier, and he made this Avenger uh, Hillman Avenger powered two seater sports car, which kind of was a little bit like a cross between a a, a Lotus Seven and a, like a U two sports car. So it was a really cool little thing, and mm-hmm. um, I uh, that was sort of my third the third car that I owned, and it was a really neat little little car, road car and track car. So we had had little guards that we bolted on it to drive it on the street, and then when we went to the track, we unbolted the guards off the wheels, and then they were exposed, and then we put some um, slicks and some steel wheels on it and um, and raced in these uh, car club events, and it was fantastic. Then I ended up actually winning my first championship was the South Island Sports Car Championship in that car against some proper race cars at the time, which was kind of fun. But after I had was ready to go up to Formula Ford when I was about 17, um, Tim was showing signs of uh, wanting to go, you know, f- follow my footsteps, only a year behind me, and take over the sports car that I ran. So he we we did it. It was a little bit against his dad Alan's um, wishes. I think Alan was a far more sensible parent than my dad was, and uh, he was hesitant about Tim buying the sports car. But Tim was adamant, and uh, so he he bought it. So the first day that Tim drove it, we went down and did a private test at our track home track in Timaru, and Tim did a drove around all day and did a really good job. And at the end of the day, my mechanic. Uh, his name is Malcolm Lovett, and he's a successful um, dealership owner in Ashburton still today. And Malcolm, we called him Moose, and uh, so I asked if I could take Moose for a couple of laps in the in the stew special at Tibaru, and <laughs> and there was this this really cool corner, fast sweeping corner coming onto the front straight with a bump in the middle of it. And I used to be able to do a pretty decent sort of a slide through there and impress anyone who might have been watching. Um, and this particular day, I didn't really account. I did a couple of laps with Moose in the passenger seat, and then. Didn't account for the extra weight and um, lost it. Hit the bump, lost it. Fired into the into the bank right in front of the pits, in front of Tim and his dad and the assembled gathering. And oh. uh, poor old Moose started breaking these fence posts with his head um, as we sort of fired along the guardrail. And uh, you know, I tore the front off Tim's brand new race car, which was very embarrassing. It was one of the. Um, Tim's dad had a pretty serious word with my dad about my attitude and and uh, and lack of respect and various other things of that nature. So, uh, and he wasn't wrong at all. And uh, it was one of those lessons I learned. Um, and then Tim and I just after work each night we'd go back to our workshop and and over the next couple of months we 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 repaired it and got it back to how it was and um, and then Tim carried awesome. on. But yeah, I crashed his car. That's what he's getting at. <laughs> Can, can we go back here, mate, just to something you, you brought up a little moment ago, and that is you kind of quit school with about maybe two years to go, I think you were uh, alluding to there. 
you had badgered a member of the car club about a job, hadn't you? And this is something that young people could probably learn from now about that persistence, about about always knocking on the door and trying to. You you, you knew you needed that that uh, that mechanical skill set, didn't you? Yeah, we had a, a guy in our car club who was a really really good dude. His name's Murray Cairns, and his and um, Murray was the foreman at the at the workshop right over the road from the primary school that I went to. So when I was, I used to watch the cars getting worked on when I was a little kid in the playground, and for some, and and then Murray was one of the sort of leading members of the Ashburton Car Club at the time, and so I just decided when I was sort of 15, 14, 15 or sixteen that I wanted to be a mechanic because I knew I needed to be one to work on my cars, and um and I wanted to work for Murray because he was a cool cool guy, and so um I went and hassled him the um. The owner of the business is also the brother of my godfather. So there's a slight connection. I may have had a little bit of an advantage, but um, I went and asked for a job and they told me, no, we don't have a job for an apprentice. We've got one now. Come back in three months. And so every two months I would go back and ask it and, and, you know, get dressed and brush my hair and go and ask if there was a job yet. And it was made clear by mum and dad I wasn't leaving school until I had a job, and so I just yeah kept badgering them every couple of months until they finally said, "Hey, yeah, there's we will have a job coming up shortly." And um, so I got to leave school and go and, and uh, start my apprenticeship, which was the beginning of a, a new direction in my life, which got the rest of this show uh, <laughs> going. Even now, mate, you have an affinity with Formula Ford. You still um, race them, you know, in historic races in New Zealand and things like that when the world is open. Am I right in saying that the first one you ever raced, uh, which may have been a 75 car, I think, has a a significant bit of of Kiwi racing history too, doesn't it? The significant history that I know about it is that when I did my first crack at the National Formula Ford Championship, I got last in every race. So... (laughs) <laughs> that's significant, <laughs> um, the poor thing. But that was, um, so, but it was it was a great car, a really good car to learn and really predictable. And then um, uh, I went after that year. Obviously, I must have shown a little, enough of a glimmer of hope for Dad to uh, help me buy a uh, the the Raynard eighty four Raynard that had just won the championships. All of a sudden, I was in a a contemporary car in a. Um, uh, was only a couple of years old, and uh, was able to do the the national championship, which was which was neat. But that that car had just won the championship with John Crawford, so it it, it probably had a bit more um, significance than the seventy five Van Diemen. You got third in the eighty six Formula Ford Championship, didn't you? And and it was at a point in your career, mate, where. You know, every once in a while, there were little speed humps for every for every race driver. You would eventually go off to to England after that third place in the in the championship. And tell us about that little chapter and Craig Coleman, Dick Bennett. I mean, it was the beginning of a couple of overseas adventures for you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, again, we we looking back, we were so so naive. It wasn't funny, but you know, I I thought that I wanted to be a Formula One driver, and I I mean I I did. But um, you know, the reality of what needed to be around you commercially and and everything else to make that a reality, it was just absolute blind faith that you have. So so I went off um, after doing that uh, the eighty six Formula Four Championship, completing that and getting third, headed off to the UK. And I literally had 400 pounds 
on me once I converted the money that I had saved. Oh. Uh, I had 400 pounds. It rocked up at, at, uh, at Gatwick. Winging a prayer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rocked up. I had two aunts, one that lived in Reading and one that lived in Cambridge, so I got some free accommodation from, from each of them from time to time. But um, uh, I went and went to help Craig Coleman. So he was he was a bit of a hero of mine because he just, you know, beaten me in the the championship and he was on track well was was had been given an invite to compete in the 1986 uh race of champions at brands hatch which was a really cool thing which ran for a couple of years so i went over as his his mechanic and helper and you know dick uh bennett's who most people that listen to your podcast would know who dick is he's an absolute legend and Formula Three and now touring cars and so forth, but you know running Senna and Maurizio Googleman and Co. He's he needs no introduction. But Dick was a was a South Island boy like us, and he was very very welcoming. He let me stay in his house for the first week or so, and um, I never forget crazy little things. He was playing Simply Red because uh, apparently Ayrton liked. Simply read, and so he liked it, and wow, and it's all sort of been one of my favourite groups ever since. And I think it's probably more the, the, the that that influence than um, the fact that 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 old Mick Hucknall was a decent singer. But um, funny little things like that don't leave you. But um, yeah, so we worked at West Surrey Racing, and um, worked with another legend over here in Australia called Brett Lupton, who has Fast Lane Racing based in Perth now. But Brett was. On his way up um, the motorsport ladder as a mechanic, and he was he was uh, or at that year Dick uh, Dick and West Surrey Racing was supposed to run a guy called Bertrand Farby in the in the eighty six Formula Three Championship, and he was tragically killed in a testing accident leading up to that championship after Senna had been through Dick's team. So they ended up running Maurizio Googleman in a Formula Three thousand car, and that was West Surrey's first year in F three thousand, but. I met, um, sorry, Brett, and we've been mates ever since, and that was, you know, many hundreds of years ago. Um, and then, yeah, Brett went on to be, uh, stick with Maurizio and go to F1 with Leighton House and things like that. So it was just a fantastic year rocking up at Brands Hatch and and watching, seeing Senna come around the last corner on the front straight in the JPS Lotus. That's that stuff you just makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and stuff mm-hmm. you just never forget. So there were lots of lots of moments. There were some – There were, I kind of – and she's probably where I learned to misbehave a little bit too because we got up to a bit of trouble over there, but <laughs> probably not too much that can be said here. <laughs> Did you or Craig, one of you, spin a bit of a bit of a funny story? You almost suggested that the South Island was its own separate country and then the next thing you're representing New Zealand and the International Race of Champions. Is this right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah. This is hilarious. So, I, my my uncle um, is, was a was a wheeler dealer. He he was uh, the the CEO of a of the James Payne Brewing Company over there at the time, and he was a, a renowned salesman. He he was yeah he was your regular Arthur Daly, and uh, for those that can remember that show, um, he and he got hold of the guy who was running the race of champions because he knew I was the South Island Formula 4 champion and I was over there helping the New Zealand Formula 4 champion and he, he was struggling to differentiate the two and thought that I should be – it was unfair that I wasn't in the race when <laughs> I was I was way off, <laughs> way off being ready to race against Roland Ratzenberger and Thomas Mazzera and 
Craig Coleman and those guys, but um, it was so he he kept pestering the poor bugger that was running the the, the race of champions, and, and like a couple of days before the race of Brands Hatch, he had him convinced that the South Island was its own country, and that I <laughs> I should be the first reserve. And a guy called Scott Atchison, who won the uh, American Formula Ford Championship, couldn't make it at the last minute, so I got yep. thrown in, absolutely hopelessly underprepared. But it was a, an absolutely unbelievable experience to be in that race. I think I qualified on the back row and had a couple of guys behind me at the end of the race. But racing like Roland Ratzenberger and um, Frank Beeler and all these dudes who went on to these amazing careers, it was pretty cool. And 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 then you know obviously the Porsche Sport Driving School has been a big part of my life the last twenty years, and that's where I met Thomas Mazira and and his wife Kate. Um, he was in the race. He in, he qualified on the front row actually, and he was one of the older guys in the race. But Thomas has been a great mate for for a long, long time, and it, that all started back then in '86. In some of the names that you've just rattled off, too, it's probably worth sharing with people. You connect, I think, at some point around here with Mark Blundell too. Uh, you know, Formula Ford 2000, and he had success in both both Europe and the and the British Championship in that. And you were you were a part of it, weren't you? Yeah. Once again, my my really famous uncle. Um, Open, kicked another door open for me. So he knew Danny Blundell, Mark's dad, through some business dealings, and they were looking. They just they were running their own. They Mark managed to be the the uh, works Raynard driver for Formula Ford two thousand for that year, and they were um, mm-hmm. running it with their own little family team called Fleet Ray Racing, and they needed a number two mechanic. So my uncle again rang at the right time and. I got a job there as, as a number two on the works Reynard for the 86 uh, British Formula Ford 2000 Championship and the European. So we did both championships that year. And that was just an absolute eye-opener. So Mark, who clearly went on to a very, very illustrious career in Formula One, like he probably he probably drove for the greatest teams in Formula One at their worst times. So he drove at, at Ligier and mm. McLaren and Williams, and um, but always with her in a slump, unfortunately. But he then went on to IndyCar career and and so forth. But Mark is still a mate. And what was funny was was that year. So he had a mate called Steve Robertson, and Steve Robertson, and Steve is now is is actually Kimi Raikkonen's manager these days. So. Manager. Yeah. So mm. Robbo yeah. and Mark Blundell were, were really good mates. Their dads were mates. They were mates. And Steve was about a year behind. He was doing uh, Formula Ford 1600 when Mark was doing Formula Ford 2000. So um, I called everyone Shag. Coming from New Zealand, calling everyone Shag was pretty normal. <laughs> and uh, so we were at dinner one night with with uh, Steve Robbo's dad, Dave Robertson, who died a few years ago, but he was a he, him and Danny Blundell were both renowned. Um, we, like I say wheeler dealers, but they dealt in big deals, millions and millions of pounds, and both very very successful and pretty aggressive guys. But really, really, they were extremely generous and kind to me. Um, and we were uh, we were at dinner mm. one night, and I called Mark Shag, and. Uh, Old Dave almost spat his dinner out. Couldn't believe what he'd heard. And then and he goes, he doesn't know what that means, does he? <laughs> and he so on the racing side, um, the Mark Blundell and Bertrand Gasho, who everyone knows went on to 
get arrested and give Michael Schumacher his break. But Blundell and Gasho hated each other. And if they weren't, to say they're trying to kill each other may be an overstatement, but not much. They loathed each other. And we went to a race at Alton Park and both got, they were on the front row. They are always on the front row and there's some good peddlers behind them, but those two guys were so good and quick and hungry. Um, they There was one race at Alton Park where they both uh, didn't even start the race because they took each other's wings off on the warm-up lap. Crazy. They were that aggressive. You, uh, yeah, it was madness. And you could you could tell these dudes were both going to go to Formula One because they were just that aggressive. Um, and it was it was neat they, uh, being a part of that and seeing how hard you had to race. And that's when I realised that I didn't probably have um, the the talent or, or at least the seat time or anywhere near like the budget or commercial backing required to get to get to the level that they were at. So I was just really, really honoured to be a part of it because it was it was a really really cool time over there in the in the in the mid late eighties. I want to have a little bit of fun here. Uh, Paul Crookshank Shaft has given me a little bit of a uh, little bit of intel as well. Oh dear, I, I don't know the name of the race. I think it was uh, I think it was the Southern something or other. Um, he he says I think you and he shared a Mazda RX-3 rally car <laughs> in some sort of endurance endurance race at Timaru. Share yeah. share that story. Oh, dear. Shit. So Dad was away for the weekend, so we had a, 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 a white RX-3 four-door Mazda, which was, which was a sort of a rally car. It was a bit of an all-rounder, but... It was a it was a bit of a dunger, but you know it was a, it was a uh, I think it had a twelve A engine. It had, had a fair bit of grunt and it had um, old treaded tires and things on it. So Dad was away, so we thought it'd be a ripping idea on the on the Thursday night, probably having a couple of beers after work. We thought it'd be a good idea to go down and and, and run in the Southern Two Hundred at Timaru. So Tim Miles and Johnny Evans, we they they agreed to um, to be the crew. And a couple of uh, Mark Leonard and a couple of our other buddies from from Timaru, we drafted them in. <laughs> so we we whistled down there on on the Saturday morning and and signed the entry forms. And so Shaft and I were driving the the, the Mazda. The, the, I think we called it the Lizard because it was a, it was just a bit of a lizard. This thing wasn't wasn't real nice. <laughs> but um, the uh, so we we did a bit of practice on Saturday and you know borrowed some fuel churns because you had to do a fuel stop and things like that. So. That was all cool. Then we we finished finished on track stuff. Went back to the Tamuka camping ground and um, Josie Spillane, <laughs> who's the who runs Highlands in, Crom- in, in Cromwell, uh, Cromwell yeah. for Quinny. Yeah, so she she uh, she had me on a couple of years ago. That her dad was the, um, the the manager of the Tamuka camping ground at the time. So anyway, we were um, <laughs> on this particular occasion. We got a bit hammered and um, we, we were we got back to the camping ground. Un, um, unfolded the awning off the side of my Fiat van, which um, my former Ford used to go into. We we rolled our sleeping bags out, that so that was we're all set with A grade accommodation for the night. Then we re- we sort of we were probably had had uh, probably a, a dozen DB draft or DB export. I think we drank at the time. Probably had a dozen of those each, and then remember we hadn't done any pit stop practice. So it's so about ten o'clock at night and a nice still evening. In, in the Tamuka camping ground. So we fired up the Mazda with a straight pipe and all the lights and the caravans and the tents all came on. So we uh, proceeded to, you know, we had to do, be realistic. So Paul and I, we were taking turns at sort of, you know, like they do in Formula in the pit lane at the VS Supercar races now. They push the car forward, but we 
we were a bit too drunk to do that, so we drove it and then, you know, drove it forward two metres, stopped, and Tim and, and Johnny would run around and try and change a wheel and tip a bit of fuel in it, and then then we'd rev the shit out of it and then do a, do a skid on the grass and, and leave, and then we'd time it. And um, that was, you know, we, we had no idea how obnoxious we were behaving, and um, we did a couple more practice stops, and then the, after about the third one, we heard a, a knock on a window, and then there was an old boy in a caravan across from where we had our little pit set up, and he knocked on the door. He's holding up a stopwatch. He gives us a thumbs up, and he nods his head. He goes, yeah, that was a good one. That'll do. $657. That's how much I've spent on roadside assist in the last two years. All this time I could have just hired Andy and his mates. Only thing is you have to be within walking distance of Tamuka Camping Ground. The Kiwi summer racing experience is kind of tradition. It's it's the thing. You came back, I think, in um, in, in 88. You drove the, a Formula Atlantic car. I think Paul Cruikshank says that that car was a distant fourth in a four-car team. Is that true? Yeah, it was. And this all coincided when... Dad was having um, some financial difficulties with what he was spending with his racing, and then I, his business could probably sustain his racing, but it couldn't sustain both of us. And so, mm-hmm. my after my Formula Ford year in the Reynard in '86, that was um, I, I was pretty much oblivious to it at the time. But now it's you know it became obvious that things weren't good. So we did a. We dad obviously thought that I was going well enough to deserve a, a run in a Formula Atlantic car over the summer series, and you know that's iconic. We we grew up uh, watching Davy Jones and Ross Cheever and all these really really cool drivers come from overseas to race Formula Atlantic against um, you know initially Kenny Smith and Radisic, and then obviously Beardo um, stepped up and was did a phenomenal job. So um, we thought very, very naively that, um, you know, before we understood the concept that you get what you pay for, we paid a very, you know, it was, I think it was 30 grand for the season and it should have been, you know, 90 or 100 grand at the time. And we just, we got a car. The first round was at Manfield and the car had been sitting in a warehouse in Malaysia for the last five years and it arrived in the country. So we're we're at Manfield in Palmerston North Racing, the car arrived uh, in a container in Auckland on the Friday night. So we'd missed the first day of practice. Um, and this is, you know, obviously the first round of a championship, which is an important championship. So we did no preseason testing, missed the practice on the Friday. Then one of Dad's mates, Alan Hours, he drove up to Auckland overnight, met a guy in the desert road halfway, picked it up, swapped over, picked up and brought it down to Manfield. And then we had a look over it and... The calipers were all seized. The master cylinders were seized. Oh. It was covered in rust and corrosion, and it was just a horrible piece of gear. But um, we, we were supposed to have a mechanic, but that didn't eventuate. So we kind of dad, myself, Paul, and and some helpers. We so just got stuck in, tried to clean it up and get it going as best we could, and we ended up actually, you know, because we were keen and naive, you know, all the other guys particularly Kenny Smith, was very generous. 
helping us out with um, some parts that we needed just to, to make the thing mobile, let alone yeah. race worthy. But um, that was the first round. Then we went to the next round and got uh, it, it got a coat of paint and some signage so it looked really cool and shiny wheels. But it was a it was a dunger, unfortunately. But and you know we finished a couple of races and I guess for me the highlight of that year was at Wigram, which was the really really cool. Um, circuit on the airbase in Christchurch yeah. is I, for some reason, even though I, I had to use about a thousand RPMs less than the other guys because the engine, no one knew sort of what state the engine was in. Um, we, um, I ended up having a really, really good race with David Brabham, who was in a, a much newer car and, um, and raced raced Kenny and was was quite competitive for for most of the race and then it broke an exhaust header and we had to pull out but it was it, for me it was the my first time being able to to race wheel to wheel with guys like David Brabham who was already quite established mm. and Kenny who's obviously a Kiwi legend um so that was yeah that was that was neat um but it was also um frustrating in that you know now you've now had a taste of this stuff and you can't do yeah. it again. So that was that was a bit uh, a bit tough, but um, it was yeah it was a really cool experience to drive that car back then. Somewhere here, America beckons for the first time. I think how and and what and and it involved sort of Super V. I think didn't it? Just just explain that that part of your your chapter. Yeah, so I was quite restless. I'd done that that nineteen eighty eight championship um, in the Atlantic car. And just thought there's got to be more to life. So I'd, um, when I came back from the UK in 80, the end of 86, I started selling cars in Christchurch, moving from Ashburton to Christchurch, selling cars, and was just a little bit frustrated that with, with or no, not a little bit, a, a big bit frustrated with how I was watching the careers of Beardo and Paul Radisich and uh, those guys starting to skyrocket and I'm selling cars in Christchurch and so I thought I got to do something about this. So I hopped on a plane and went to America, and a, a wonderful bloke by the name of Murray McLaren is, is uh, also an Ashburton dude, and went to school with my uncle Tommy, and um, he worked for Dave McMillan in, in the US, and uh, with his Atlantic cars and Super Vs and things. And so I went uh, one way ticket to LA met with Murray and he was working at Swift. So remember those DB9, beautiful DB9 uh, Swift Atlantic cars? So he was working at the factory at San Clemente, I think it was, somewhere in south of LA. Um, so I went to work with him and then got a job just doing little jobs like riveting the the rev nuts on the front of the tub to put the windscreens on and just helping out, not getting paid, but helping out and just being blown away that here I was at the Swift factory where all these cool cars were coming out of and all these famous drivers were winning races with them all over the world and here I was bolting some of them together. So that was that was pretty cool. So uh, a week or so later, the Long Beach IndyCar race came to town and Super V at the time was kind of like what the road to Indy is now, supporting the IndyCar championship. Um, Super V were running at Long Beach, so I just did the old usual wander along each team and ask if they had a job, if they needed any helpers, and then... There was a guy called Peter Jacob who ran a team called Barchi Racing, which was based in Chicago. Um, I didn't know it was based in Chicago at the time. I assumed it was based in, in California. But um, so <laughs> I, I asked if they had a 
had a job. He goes, yeah, actually we do. Um, so I um, started helping out and and the following race was in Dallas on a in a, in a car park of a casino or something, I think. And um, we hopped in, the, hopped in the big Chevy Dooley with the 44-foot trailer on the back with the race car and we hit the road and obviously, you know, you don't have phones and GPS, you don't have a clue where you are. And um, it, the whenever a song from Tracy Chapman's album, that Fast Car song that she had back then, whenever a song yep. from that album comes on the radio, I always yell out to the boys in the workshop, what year is this? Because we listen to Tracy Chapman every bloody day for about <laughs> six months. Um, so I do recall that it was 1988 very well. But um, uh, so we we drove for a couple of days and then um, we raced in Dallas and Paul Radisich was running for another team and I think he won the race. And so it was kind of cool to see a familiar face and someone who I really admired um, there. And then we, 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 I think we got second actually with EJ Lindsay and then we packed up and we hopped in the truck again and we're driving for another couple of days. I'm like, oh, shouldn't we be back in LA by now? And Pete said, why would we be, why would we do that? And I said, isn't that where we're based? And he goes, no, no, we're based in Chicago. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Probably should ask that question. Uh, so anyway, I yeah. lived in in a yeah in, in a little suburb called Vernon Hills, just um, just outside of Chicago, for the year in '88, and that was that was really cool. That was a fun year. Little geography lesson. That's terrific, mate. And and those con those those contacts that you forged in that period, Andy, still kind of. And and again, when you went back later, but they serve you well to this day, don't they? Yeah. So it was. I had no idea how getting getting drunk and making a fool of yourself with all your mates could be so memorable. Because I've got uh, a lot of guys. We we went back when we went back for Hunter's first uh, race over there at the beginning of two thousand and nineteen. Um, we were. Um, in the lobby of the hotel, having breakfast, about to go to in Florida, about to go to St. Petersburg, um, and a dude came up to me and went, "Andy, is that you?" And I'm like, "Yeah." Um, and he goes, "Oh man, how long's it been?" And I'm like, uh, "I don't know. <laughs> I got no idea." <laughs> uh, and he goes, and he puts his hand. And he goes, "Michael, Michael Cannon." And I'm like, "Hey, hey, Michael, how are you, mate?" And, and still. Couldn't remember where, when or where, but um, he's the guy who's now Scott Dixon's engineer, right? So he was working for Dale Coin Racing um, at the time. And, and when we met in 2019, he went over to Chip Ganassi and now he's um, Scotty's engineer. But he, we, 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 we caught up again um, later that weekend and started swapping stories. And it was, yeah, so it was back in 1988 when we were, it was still a pretty social time after the racing. A lot of the teams would stay back on the Sunday night and and celebrate their their weekend. And he and I, some of the stories that came out later were a little bit eye watering, but it was we had a lot of fun. Um, and you know that's a you know there's guys like that who are quite influential now, who were just uh, for the want of a better word shit kickers like me back in the day, spannering race cars and and having a great time and living the dream. So um, yeah, there's there was quite a few relationships, you know, like Ziggy. Paul Harkis, who is the the, the workshop manager at, at Andretti, another guy that we kicked around with a lot, and now he's also very influential. So, yeah, it was it was uh, I never ever would have dreamed that friendships that I forged in 1988 would 
A, be remembered, but B, possibly even be helpful, you know, 30 years down the road. 1991 was a massive year for you, dominated in multiple Formula Ford series and not just against the gun locals, mate. Uh, Jonathan Harmer and Jason Courage, Piers' son, was in New Zealand too. A very cool year to, to be able to compete in. So um, a Kiwi guy, uh, Graham Lorimer, had uh, been established in the UK for a little while and he um, wanted to bring a team back to New Zealand and, and obliterate the, 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 the locals um, with his big team and truck and all the, you know, equipment and staff that he could bring down. He was associated with Nigel Mansell in, in Europe and they were called Mansell Magic. So, yeah, Jonathan Harmer was the guy, was sort of their lead guy and Piers Courage's son, Jason, was they were their two lead guys and they had three Japanese drivers who clearly were sort of helping fund the whole thing. But the, the situation surrounding those guys was that uh, if one of those, one of their drivers from the Mansell Magic team won the international portion of the New Zealand Formula Ford Championship, they would win a full season in Formula Vauxhall Lotus at the time, which was, you know, the, ne- the next biggest thing behind British Formula 3. So it was a massively coveted mm. um prize or, or, and championship to compete in. So for them, the carrot was enormous. Um, for us, there was no carrot. It was just we wanted to race and win and prove ourselves. So what was really fascinating is the first, we'd, we'd won a, I'd won a couple of South Island Formula 4 races getting ready for the championship and then the New Zealand full national championship had had done a couple of rounds before the, the international part, which is the five rounds over that over January, over the, the Christmas New Year summer break um, started. So the first round of the international series was at Teratonga in Invercargill and Lorimer had Mark Thatcher, as who was a, a lawyer, a QC in London, and he was their, their legal counsel. So first time in Formula Ford racing in New Zealand, we had to have some, a team with a, with a full-time lawyer so he his job had been to analyse the New Zealand the rule book of the New Zealand Formula Ford Championship and which he'd done before they came down here and then Lorimer came to see me we were in scrutineering I think at, at Invercargill and he came up to me and and introduced me hey Andy I'm Graham I hear you go okay and I'm like oh I, I don't know I'll, I'll try I'll, you know we'll, we'll do our best he said good luck but you won't win this championship and. I'm like, oh, he's a nice chap, um, and clearly trying to nick me in the head, but didn't really didn't really work. It kind of had the opposite effect. But those words rang in my head because I'm like, I just felt something was up. Um, had no idea what it was. So as the championship unfolded, we were it was it was uh, the first year of the '91 Van Diemen's, which became an iconic Formula Ford. They were competitive for many, many years in, in world Formula Ford racing. But and our, we, we were in an 88 Van Diemen, which was three years older, but we, we, our car was really well sorted and the car and, and I were, were getting along really well. So we were pretty quick in the, in, at the beginning of the year. Then when we got to Bay Park, which was a, a, a pretty scruffy but really cool track in Mount Maunganui uh, near Tauranga in North Island, and on the Sunday after the race, the top four or five cars, so it was myself, Mark Pedersen, Gary Croft, the other 
Um, they were the two main contenders, and I think Chris Abbott, um, our four cars were impounded, and we're like, oh, this is odd. Um, what's up? So they, so Lorimer's team had put a protest in to Motorsport New Zealand that our engines were illegal, and we all had different engine builders. So this that that sort of made us wonder what what was going on there. Turns out that there'd been a printing error in the rule book uh, that year, and there was a paragraph or two around the minimum weights of parts like pistons and flywheels and things that had been omitted. The, the wording, uh, minimum weight may be achieved by machining or words to that effect had been left out of the rule book. So essentially it meant any part in the engine that wasn't completely uh, off the shelf and been modified to meet minimum weight was illegal. So that became apparent. We went to the hearing, Crofty, Mark, Abbott, and Abbott was a lawyer himself. So that was, that he, he was a bit of free counsel for us all at the time. But we went to the stewards and the local um, technical guys went, you know, that they're right. As the rule book is, as, as it's been published, they're right. We're, we're screwed. You guys are going to, going to be all disqualified. So we're like, oh, that's, that's a bit of a bugger. And this is kind of where the New Zealand and motorsport in general, but we're, we are a big family. And when, when you're up against it, you tend to, rally together, particularly when it's in your in your mutual best interest. So so the four us four teams that kind of hated each other on a regular basis, we all bandied together and went, well hang on, if our engines are illegal by the new definition of the rule book, shouldn't we be checking Lorimer's engines? So the officials went, hmm, that's a very good idea. So they went, okay, you and this we're now 10 o'clock at night. So we're normally you know, well into the DB exports by now, but we're uh, we're dealing with legal issues instead. <laughs> and so the officials went went and um, asked to Lorimer's guys to strip the engines of Harmer and Courage's cars. They had lightened parts, so under the new definition, they were also illegal. So they got kicked out too. So talk about getting uh, bitten on the backside with your wow. their, their own information. They just clearly hadn't um, thought through the the the, the full implications of that so that was a real eye-opener to all of us how um, ruthless a team could be to win a championship and clearly it was because those guys had mm. such a massive prize on the line and um, obviously Lorimer and his guys had said dudes we've got an ace up our sleeve which we'll pull out when we need to um, I'm sure if Jason Cam um, Courage and Jonathan Harmer had been had been leading the championship or one of them had been they would have May not have needed to do that, but they obviously needed to do that because I think we were we were leading it still at that time with a with the final round to go. Um, so yeah, it was it was really interesting that uh, to see how how uh, vicious things can get when and that's when you realise you're actually racing for something that's pretty meaningful. True to the respect that you uh, even have now, but clearly had in that paddock at that time, mate. Uh, people, I think, chipped in to help repair a crashed car at one point. Um, and is there some talk about a, a, a delayed race start at a significant point in the championship? Because they wanted you to have a, a fair shot at it, didn't they? Yeah. So that was the, this was the following weekend. So obviously things are starting to heat up. I was leading the championship and we're at the final round of the cha- the international portion of the championship that we're, they were they were going for. Um, I was leading Gary Croft and 
Jonathan, it was very close behind me, Jonathan Harmer and Jason Courage and Mark Pedersen and a guy called Phil Hellebrake. The six of us, any one of us, could have won a race on any day. So at that point, um, so I was still had the benefit of, of having started the season really strongly. Um, but it came down to a point where in the second to last, we had two races on the Sunday. The first race, we were going down the back straight at Pukekohe. This is before they put the the new extension in there. So we were we were honking down there. So we're, we're at the kink, we were three wide, probably throw a blanket over five of us. Mega. And I was leading. Crofty was in my slipstream, about to pull out beside me. And Harmer then dropped in behind my car and um, he flicked his steering wheel left into Crofty and sent Crofty sideways. He T-boned me and we both hit the fence at, 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 I don't know, probably 7,000 RPM and, and fourth. So at the, at the highest speed we go anywhere in the country and we were both in the fence and Harmer carried on. He was leading and a really another good mate of ours to this day, Mark Pedersen, even though we raced hard against each other, Mork, as he's known, was um, incensed by what he'd seen and he was close enough. He he pinned his ears back. He was right there, but he caught Harmer with, I think it might have been on the last lap at the hairpin, just past where our cars were in the fence. Then you go to down to a first gear hairpin and Mork got Harmer, hit him in the gearbox and sent him off um, just to help try and make amends a little bit and, and, and help <laughs> help us Kiwis sort of not, not have too much of a, a points deficit. So, again, it was the, the boys sticking together against the, the might of this British team that was now either throwing the rule book at us, hadn't worked, and now they would, were really taking the gloves off and putting our cars in the fence. So my car had both the right-hand wheels ripped off it uh, and that's when the camaraderie of New Zealand Motorsports. So there was a point we had two or three hours. We had some parts we did not have spares at all, like the rear rock suspension rocker. So we were John Crawford, who's a very good engineer, was welding pieces of angle iron to the rear rocker to give it some some because it had it'd been bent, so it was bashed into shape, and then braced with some angle iron. And we had whatever parts we could get from some of that you know, the. I think we had the only 88 car in the championship. There was an 89 car there. Um, so we got what parts we could there. And they pulled the gearbox off it and the clutch was full of dirt, you know, things like that that people wouldn't have thought of. You know, Nigel Barclay, a good mate of mine, his mum, she was working in the front with a little paintbrush, getting the mud out of all the master cylinders and the pedals and all that stuff had jammed up from the dirt that was stuck in there from the sideways trip across the the grass into the fence. So... There were there were probably at some points twelve to fifteen people working on the car on my car to get it going again for the last race and then we were the the cars were forming up on the grid they were starting to head out my car was still on the stands we dropped it down we ran pushed it down to a flat little piece of concrete and and didn't put the tow bars on it we just ran string around it to get the wheels facing somewhere near the right place and then the officials found uh, some imaginary debris on the track down the back straight or something because they could see that we needed about five minutes. <laughs> so uh, they went and tended to the imaginary debris and got a broom or something out and 
stood around for a couple of moments and then came back. And by that time, we'd just managed to get out on the track as the cars were forming up on the grid. So we went out round and we were on pole from our lap time in the first race. So uh, we ended up getting third in that race and and um, and winning the championship. So that was that was uh, yeah, it was pretty surreal. Uh, achievement and and you know it was you know it was made all all the better by the fact that you know us Kiwis were all racing each other as hard as we always did, but we had these interlopers coming to try and touch us up, and we uh, we uh, we cost them a, a free ride in Formula Vauxhall. So it was it was a pretty uh, rewarding yeah pretty rewarding weekend or championship all round. True to form, mate. Uh, did you? break into Graham Lorimer's room or into the team and, and and you somehow acquired, shall we say, some team kit that night that you wore to the presentation. I, I, I don't know what the correct story is here, but we, you... you, you, but yes, you- yes. <laughs> <laughs> So there's a two... Poor old Graham. He, he, um, he obviously upset me more than I realised because we managed well, what, what, to... What a motivation though, mate. Ironically, <laughs> what a, what, it, it, clearly, it, it clearely spurred you on, mate. Did it? Yeah, well, he so with, with I can't remember the exact detail around it, but we did we did break into something, and I don't think we broke into his truck. We <laughs> broke into his awning, and they had these Mansell Magic T-shirts um, that they were wearing very proudly throughout the championship. And clearly, Nigel Mansell back then was an absolute hero, and um, so it was just another little attempt by by those boys, very smartly, to intimidate us. So what we thought would be, it would be even better if we snuck in, stole some of these T-shirts and then got drunk wearing their T-shirts um, with our wreath and our cup and trophy and all that stuff. So we've, there's a cool photo of, of Johnny Evans, Crookshank and myself wearing our Mansell Magic T-shirts that weren't really given to us. We had to go and get them ourselves. That's the end of part one of my podcast with Larrikin Racer turned successful team owner Andy McElray. A quick thanks to all of you for the comments, feedback and the reviews. We read every one of them and often find ourselves adding the names you suggest to our growing guest wish list. In time, we will tackle as many of them for you as we can. In the meantime, tell your mates about it and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Now, Andy is enjoying the chat. He always does. We have part two with him in the library and ready for you to fire up right now. From success in Trans Am to losing a mate at the mountain, plus the young stars who graduated from MR and his son's own bright future. Listener.